If you would, turn to Philippians chapter 2. And we're going to be in verses 14 through 30 this morning. As you're turning there, I'll just give you a, a, a bit of a recap. So you know where, we, where we've been and where we're going. And so that what we're, we're looking at today might make a little more sense. But if you, if you think of it this way, just giving you the context of Philippians, what it means for us. The strong temptation for cultures in all times and in all places is to protect themselves, to be comfortable, to be powerful, essentially to accumulate control over their lives. This is everybody in every place. Certainly it was Philippi, which was a Roman colony, which had privilege and wealth and affluence and control. And it's certainly the same for Santa Barbara, right? Everywhere and every place, certainly our city and our town, our culture, us, we want protection, comfort, power, control. Jesus comes in on the scene a, several, a couple thousand years ago, and he starts preaching something else. He says, I have a better way. I have a bigger, more beautiful life for you to live. And it's the opposite of what you think is, is, is the right way to live. And he comes and he says, this better way to live is not through uh, gaining control and asserting yourself and power. It's actually through death and the abandonment of control, the abandonment of yourself. It's through self-denial. And he blows people's mind and he changes the world. About 30 years after Jesus, uh, a guy by the name of Paul, who we, we could say probably knew Jesus better than any person on the planet, writes a letter to Philippi, a town just like ours. And he says, to all of you who are persuaded and convinced that what Jesus is saying is true, that by following his way of weakness and self-denial and love, you'll actually experience life as it was meant to be. If you're persuaded by that, I want to show you what lies ahead. I want to show you what lies ahead. And that's the name of our series as we're going through Philippians. And here's some of the things we've seen in the recent weeks uh, that that Jesus poem we've memorized, verse 5 through 11, is Paul saying Jesus is the supreme example of what love is, of what true power in weakness is. We look at him, and yet it's not just an example, it's not just a picture that we get to see and be awed by, but in the uh, remaining verses after that, Paul says this power, this manner of life, this quality of life that we see in the Son of God is available to all people who put their faith and trust in Christ. And so it's not just a moral story, but God is now in Christians working in them to will and to work for his good pleasure. So when we see Jesus, we see a glimpse of the kingdom life, but we're also being told and promised that's the life that we also get to experience now. Okay, What I left out last week was that all of this is taking place in community. 
So we were speaking last week, uh, we used the word spiritual formation, speaking of, of the process of being transformed into the likeness of Christ. What I want to talk about today is spiritual formation in community life, because everything Paul is saying right now is in relationships that are taking place in a real, uh, in a real city. And before I read it, we could, say, we could put it this way. If, if all that I just shared is true, we will find ourselves as a church interacting with one another in the way that Paul describes in chapter 2, verse 3 through 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Why? Because having the same mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, we are in Christ, changes everything. So this is where I want to start reading, and we'll take it from there. Paul says, after all of that, says in verse 14, this is where we'll start. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. That you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. We'll stop right there. We'll read the rest later. But this is the word of the Lord. If if everything that we've uncovered from Paul is true up until this point, that the true way of power is through weakness that results in love and not what we see in culture and in media, and, oft, and really often in relationships that we have, but what we see in Jesus, start looking at Jesus for what true power is. If that's true, and this is to be taking place in community, and what Paul says is one of the first things that will be noticeably absent from a church like that is grumbling and disputing. The first thing that will be noticeably absent, there's probably a lot of things that will be noticeably absent in a church marked by love, but definitely grumbling and disputing. Oh man. I already need to repent. And I know when Paul says, I, lo- I just love some of the things that he says, he says, do everything without grumbling and complaining. There's a sense in which he's saying, hey, every dimension of your life There's no compartments. It's not like when we gather on Sunday, we do not grumble and complain because we're busy singing, right? But on Monday, it's a different story. Paul's like, there are no compartments to the Christian life. Everything is spiritual. There's not like a spiritual side and then there's like a, you know, recreational side and then there's like a family side. Everything that touches you belongs under subjection to the King, Jesus Christ, including our conversations. And when he says do everything, I love this, every sphere of life belongs to Jesus. 
and is being conformed to Jesus. Even the small things, even the small things Jesus cares about, the small things are actually some of the most important things sometimes. Uh, the legendary late coach of uh, the basketball team out of UCLA, John Wooden, was famous for being obsessed with the little things. One of the greatest coaches, arguably, in the history of humanity. It used to be said of him that on the first day of practice, he would teach all of his basketball players how to put their socks on. Because if you put your socks on wrong, you'll get blisters. It wasn't just socks. But he would do other things. It wasn't just a matter of sinking baskets, but he would even teach his players to acknowledge, uh, anytime they made, a, they made a basket, to acknowledge the person that passed them the ball. He was obsessed with the little things. And so to this day, when you're watching the, uh, you're watching the NBA and you see the, the finger pointing, right, that originated out of UCLA. Now, there's a lot of USC people in this room, so I will not talk about UCLA for too long, but this is the type of thing Paul is saying. There's, there's everything is sacred in your life. There's nothing too small that Jesus doesn't care about it. And we're speaking about grumbling and complaining. It's about everything. Not just when we show up here or at a home group or whatnot. It's, it's an everything. That's a hard thing to accomplish, right? Because what are we talking about when we're talking about grumbling and disputing? It pr- probably means what you think that it means. But, but just in case, to, to grumble really just means making negative comments about someone or something behind their back. Uh, this might even be, you know, under your breath. It's not like they're hearing you, but you're just grumbling, right? You're grumbling. Uh, so it could be in the parking lot. It could be at your job. But you're just like, oh, there's people all doing something. Not getting mine. Just don't even. It's almost like speaking in tongues. Like you don't even know what you're saying. But like the opposite, like devil tongues. Just like grumbling, like, people, and I don't get mine, I wish I was. Now, what does it mean to dispute? That's pretty simple, what it means to grumble. You get it. Like, the word matches what Paul intends. To dispute, uh, another, another word for that, or another way of thinking of that, is grumbling publicly. So, it's the grumbling that's under the breath, that's in your heart, that just kind of makes it outside your lips, you know? It's... This is a trajectory that Paul seems to be describing, something that happens under your breath, but then like you're, you're around people and it starts to get out. Another word for disputing might be complaining. Either way you cut it, semantics aside, we understand what this is. Grumbling, disputing, arguing, complaining. Paul says, I want the church to do everything without that. Now, a really, really careful caveat here. Paul is not saying, he's not saying, never point out something wrong. It's okay to call out bad things. We see that in the Bible. You know, the prophets did that all the time, calling out injustices. It's okay to express grief, right? Kind of a hard, hard to read through the Psalms and think that it's not. There are more psalms speaking about grief and lament than there, than there are about uh, uh, the opposite. Nor is it bad to just share how you feel when what you're feeling like is not good. Hard to read Jesus and even Paul and some of the other apostles, definitely the psalms, 
and not to get that. So Paul is not saying, hey, you can't call out bad things when they happen. You can't express grief or sadness. You can't share how you really feel. Actually, we see in the Bible, we see in Jesus, in the Psalms, which is his prayer book, that very thing. It's actually Christ-like to feel the full realm, the full spectrum of human emotions. It's not just happiness, it's sadness and grief. So Paul isn't saying, hey, put on a happy face and fake it until you make it. It's not what he's saying. This is different. This isn't expressing grief or sadness. This isn't calling out bad things that are happening in the world. This is more of a heart that is empty of gratitude and full of cynicism. It is cynical language. You know this, like maybe you've run into someone who's just, they're always, they're always just down on everybody and everything. Always questioning people all the time. Always questioning situations. They always see the glass half empty. They're gossiping or they just have an overall habit of complaining about everything and everyone. It's more a, a, a perspective of life, right? That makes its way into cynical language. And when Paul says things like grumbling and disputing or, or, or later when he uh, uses words like a crooked and twisted generation or blameless and innocent children of God. He's using key phrases from the Old Testament and he's drawing our minds back to Israel when they were in the wilderness. He's giving an example of what he means by, by complaining and grumbling and disputing. All you have to do is look up Numbers chapter 14, Exodus chapter 16, but you don't have to right now because I'll just tell you what, what they did. Israel, blessed extravagantly by God. I mean, they just got redeemed from the land of slavery. And they're already complaining. And they're saying things like, you know, I know we were totally disenfranchised and oppressed. I know we were beaten day and night and worked seven days a week. But man, at least we got cheeseburgers, you know? Like, what is this manna from heaven? God, it would have been better for me, if, uh, better for us if we were to be in slavery than it is right now. Because he was calling them to a, 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 bigger, a, a greater life. It's that, it's that lifestyle and perspective of complaining that Paul seems to be talking about. Now, I think most of us get that. Because we see it, we hear it, maybe we even do it. I've certainly, uh, I certainly stumble into this a lot. And perhaps you're asking, saying, I, I see what Paul is saying not to do. But the truth is, I kind of like it. Because who doesn't like complaining just a little bit? You know. You were on Highway 101 this past week when it was raining, saying with me and the rest of the church in unison, Californians just don't know how to drive. Nobody here knows how to drive, obviously, except you. You are the exception. It's everybody else. <laughs> you what? You crashed your motorcycle this week. Did you grumble and complain? Hey, it's okay. We've all been there, right? <laughs> no problem. That's what I'm saying. I grumble and complain because truly, in a world where bad things happen to me, it makes me feel a little bit better about my life to do that. 
So perhaps you're asking that. I hear Paul is telling me not to do that, but why wouldn't I? Why wouldn't I? And I think what he's picturing for us after this is the why. He says in the next verse, it's to stand out, as a, uh, if I could put it this way, to be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish. I love what he says here because he doesn't just prohibit us from a couple actions and then give us some different actions. He doesn't say, hey, stop, being, uh, stop complaining about stuff and instead start talking more positively. He places some negative actions right next to things that aren't really actions at all. They are manners of being, character traits. Look at what he says, blameless and innocent. That's not something that you do. He says to be children of God. That's not something that you do. That's something you are. He doesn't say, uh, uh, or right after that, he says to be children of God without blemish. Again, not an action. He places right next to negative actions, character traits, things that you actually are by identity and by practice. In other words, it almost feels like Paul is saying, put away some of these things like grumbling and disputing in order to stand out as a different kind of people with a different quality of life. This is, I think, an important thing for us to understand as a church. So we've been talking for the past few weeks about spiritual transformation, spiritual formation, the process of being made more like Jesus, right? And spiritual formation, what we saw in the last two verses, is not behavior modification. It's not just exchanging old behaviors with new behaviors, as if that's going uh, to be what saves your soul. I used to grumble, but now I'm going to talk nice about people. It's deeper than that. Spiritual formation is not behavior modification. It is transformation at the deepest level of who you are as a person, at the level of your character. You know what character is? Character is not something that you do. What you do comes out of that. But character is your distinctive nature. It's how you tick. It's where your heart lies. It's, all, it's your distinctive nature out of which come the things that you automatically do. So if your habit is to grumble and complain, guess what? That's part of your character. Character, then, is not doing good when you're trying to do good. I'll tell you something now. I am not grumbling and complaining at this very moment. But that's not because I am not a grumbler and a complainer. That's because all of you are listening to me (laughs) preach about grumbling and complaining, and I'm trying really hard not to. But if you wanted a real view into my life, follow me around tomorrow when I've got screaming kids in my lap. When I'm in a grocery store parking lot, Delavina Trader Joe's after rush hour, (laughs) in a 30-person deep line, and all I've got is some broccolini. And then you'll know what kind of person I am. Character transformation is not just doing good things when you're trying to do them. Character is what you do without trying. It's what you end up doing without even thinking about it because that's who you are. And listen, everyone in this room has character. You just have good character or bad character. Uh, You know, there's old language that's, I think, helpful to describe those things. We say virtue and vice, right? What's vice? It's bad character. 
It's acting uh, wrongly automatically. Virtue is right character. That's Christ-like character. We all have that, ways that we act automatically on the spot. Spiritual formation is basically character formation. It's changing your character. When we speak about changing character, we're saying we want to have the ability to do the right thing at the right time and for the right reasons without thinking about it. We want to become the types of people who do the right thing without thinking. One of my favorite illustrations of this very thing, I actually told this story, I think, like a year and a half ago, uh, is of the airline pilot Chelsea Sullenberger third. He goes by the nickname Sully. And there was a movie that just came out about him. Remember that movie? Airline pilot um, who basically crashes a plane and everybody lives. It's a lot deeper than that. Um, I want to read to you what's actually happening. This is not out of the movie, so there's no spoilers here. What's actually happening with Sully as he's going through a very difficult situation with this plane. And this is kind of a, a page that I want to read straight out of the book. Uh, but just listen to this, because it's better than I can put in my own words. And put yourself in the scene. Everything was fine in Airbus A320. Fine until two minutes after takeoff, the aircraft ran into a flight of Canada geese. One goose in a jet engine would be serious, but a flock would be disastrous. Almost at once, both engines were severely damaged and lost their power. The plane was at that point heading north over the Bronx, one of the most densely populated parts of the city. Captain Sullenberger and his co-pilot had to make several major decisions instantly if they were going to save the lives of people not only on board, but also on the ground. They could see one or two small local airports all the way in the distance, but quickly realized we're not going to make it, we're going to crash and hurt a bunch of people. Likewise, the other option of putting it down on the New Jersey Turnpike was not, uh, not in the question. That was a busy main road leading in and out of the city. Huge problems, dangers for the plane and the occupants, cars, drivers on the road. There was really only one option left for Sully, the Hudson River. It's difficult to crash land on the water. Anyone have experience with that? One small mistake. Catch the nose or one of the wings in the river, say, and the plane will turn over and over like a flopping gymnast before breaking up and sinking to the bottom. So in the two minutes before landing, Sullenberger had, he and his co-pilot had to do the following vital things. Listen. Also, along with plenty of other tasks that most of us would not understand. Here's some that we might. They had to shut down the engines. They had to set the right speed so that the plane could glide as long as possible without power. Fortunately, Sullenberger is a gliding instructor. They had to get the nose of the plane down to maintain speed. They had to disconnect the autopilot and override the flight management system. They had to activate the ditch system which seals vents and valves to make the plane as waterproof as possible once it hit the water. Most important of all, they had to fly and then glide the plane in a fast left turn 
uh, left-hand turn so it could come down facing south going with the flow of the river. And having already turned off the engines, they had to do this using only the battery-operated system and the emergency generator. They then had to straighten the plane up from the tilt and the sharp left turn so that on landing, the plane would be exactly level from side to side because flopping gymnast. Finally, they had to get the nose back up again, but not too far up and land straight and flat on the water. And what do you know? If you watch the movie, they did it and everybody lives. Now, hallelujah. This was a story that was told for years. Because seven years after September 11th, 2001, New York City had an airplane story to celebrate. One of the things that people used to describe this event was it's a miracle. I don't want to take away from that because I think it was. But there's also a real sense in which Sullenberger really did very easily and naturally what would have been miraculous for most anybody else. He had already been practicing the things that he was supposed to do before this event over and over and over and over and over and over. N.T. Wright, commenting on this, describes it in this way. He says, virtue or good character in the strict sense, is very similar. It's what happens when someone has made a thousand small choices, requiring effort and concentration to do something which is good and right, by which, uh, but which doesn't come naturally. And then on the thousandth and first time, when it really matters, when you're flying over the Hudson River, they find that they do what's required automatically, as we say. On that thousandth and first occasion, it does indeed look as if it just happens. But reflection tells us that it doesn't just happen. Virtue is what happens when wise and courageous choices have become second nature. Following Christ is a practice a thousand simple, small steps in the same direction. A slow obedience in the same direction, as Eugene Peterson put it. So listen, this, this idea of spiritual transformation that we see in Paul expressed uh, in this illustration by Sully is, should inform how we go about things like not grumbling and complaining. Because I don't think Paul is telling us here, hey, Stop grumbling and complaining. Just will yourself to not do that anymore. The wrong question for us to be asking is, how do I stop grumbling? If you're a grumbler, grumbling is going to come out when it matters the most. The goal here is not to say, how do I stop grumbling, but how do we become the types of people who don't grumble? And you can fill in that word with anything that you want. The goal is not to stop being angry. How do we become the types of people who do not get angry? The goal is not, how do I will myself to bless people who are cursing me and to love my enemies? No, how do I become the type of person who actually loves my enemies? This 
is the beauty of the good life in Christ that is promised to you in the kingdom. This is available to you right now. How do we become the types of people who don't grumble? Going through some of the things that we've read already in Philippians, uh, in so many of the series that we've studied in, in Jesus and in the apostles and in the prophets, let's just, for the sake of simplicity, boil it down to a couple things. Two things to take with you today. One, spiritual transformation has to start with your mind. Later in Philippians, Paul will say, hey, think about certain things. Things that are true, honorable, excellent, praiseworthy, of good report. And when you change your thought life, then the God of peace will be with you. Starts with your thought life. Some of you are saying, I think about everything except for those things. What do I do? Paul says in, in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, what? Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by what? By the renewing of your mind. Spiritual transformation starts with the things that you think. Our willpower, have you noticed, is so weak sometimes. Our habits, we have no control of over. The one thing that all of us can control is the things that we think about. Where we put our mind. Paul says, put your mind on the right thing. Renew your mind. Give yourself new narratives. When I grumble and complain, when I'm angry, when I live out of these sinful habits, it's because I have given myself scripts, things that I think all the time. I think by second nature. And that drives me. That's what Paul seems to be saying all the time. We need new narratives in our mind. We need new thoughts and new ideas. And we need to fill our minds with the things that God says. You want something uh, to, to rehaul what's already in your mind? Can't think of a better thing than the things that God has already said. So if you want to start renewing your mind, start thinking about truth. Get into the Bible. Find out what God says about himself, about you, about whatever situation that you're in that's causing you to grumble. I'll just give you an example. If I grumble, and I'm just using my, my own example for this, but I, I, I tend to grumble and complain because I feel like I'm not, I'm not getting what I deserve. Or it could be that. It could be like I, I'm, I feel overlooked it might even be like uh, I'm getting a bad end of a deal, but in some way or another, I'm not getting something that I feel like I should be getting. You know what a good way for Chris Lazo to start renewing his mind is? Is to think about how good God has been to me. If the opposite of grumbling is thankfulness, I don't know, just throwing some things out there. Maybe I should start thinking about things that God has done for me that I can be thankful for. Psalm 145, verse 9. The Lord is good to all. And his mercy is over all that he has made. I'm just pulling out one single verse about the goodness of God. But I can take a verse like that and think about that all day. The Lord is good to all. I can personalize that. The Lord is good to me. I can stand in the longest line on a Friday afternoon at Trader Joe's on De La Vina Street and say over and over, the Lord is good to me. I'm serious. 
I don't need to wait until a crisis hits. I can start with small things like a line at the grocery store and say, the Lord is good to me. The Lord has been good to me. What am I doing? I'm changing the way that I think. I've been thinking different ways, but now I'm changing the way that I think. And you can begin to do this in a variety of different ways. It doesn't matter if you have a crying baby and they're screaming at you all day long. You're in rush hour traffic just, just beating your fist at people. Maybe you're not where you thought you were in your career at this point. Maybe you are jealous of somebody else. It doesn't matter. You're struggling with grumbling and complaining. It starts with changing the way that you think about God and yourself. Getting into the Bible and renewing those narratives and those scripts with a different way of thinking. One of the most simple ways to start is to think about how good God has been to you and how good he is to you, even when it doesn't seem like it. Believing and trusting like a child does with their father. My, my dad is good. How many of you know from experience that no matter how many times your mind thinks something, your body sometimes does something entirely different. <laughs> Stanley, yeah. Hey, right there with you. I mean, I quote scripture to you guys every week for 40 minutes. And on Monday, I do the opposite. <laughs> and I'm like, why am I not doing the things that my mind knows are right? Because we also see in Paul and Jesus and John and all of these different apostles all throughout Scripture that you are a whole person. You're not just a brain and a mind, but you have a body, you have a soul, you have a heart, and all of those things need to be made whole in Christ. One of the ways that we do that is by training our body to do the things that our mind tells it to do. We adopt practices. Some people call them spiritual disciplines, whatever you want to call them with me, but we train ourselves for godliness. So what would that look like for grumbling and complaining? So I'm already, we're already renewing our mind. We're believing that God has our best interests in mind. We're swallowing scripture. We're thinking on truth. We're believing the best. But how do we train ourselves? Here's a way. I'm just going to, just making something up, throwing it out there. You could try this if you want. But start Maybe practicing, asking God what he is gifting to you in the moments where you feel like complaining the most. I'll just kind of go back to that dead horse, but in the longest line at Trader Joe's, when I'm like, I knew I shouldn't have gotten in this line. It was shorter, but I remember that person, that cashier, they have a reputation for being slow. I should have went with my gut. I should have gone over there. It's too late to go over there because now that, that line is 30 deep because everybody knew what I intuitively known. I didn't do it. Now I'm stuck in a line 30 feet deep with my broccolini behind all of these full carts. Instead of doing that, which I always do, don't tell anybody, I could be like, God, I got a lot of time here. What do you want to do? What are you trying to do in me? Because you're always good. You're good in the long lines. You're good with the crying babies. You're good in the uh, job uh, promotions and the job demotions. You're always good. Where is your goodness in this? Show me. What are you trying to do in this? Amen. And you might see it. <laughs> 
Now, that's going to be hard, right? And I'm not promising that the first time that you do this, everything's going to be changed. Don't expect for lightning bolts from heaven to transform you from the inside out. Expect doing this thousands of times, forming and shaping who you are at the core level so that what you believe in your mind actually takes over your body and you are changed at the level of your character. What are some other ways? I'm just throwing some ways out. That's like a custom-made one. You can make up your own. There's also classic ones that like the Church Universal has done, serving other people. You could go to a soup kitchen and serve the homeless. That's an easy way. Uh, You know, if you're renewing your mind, God is good. Serving the homeless, that's a good way of getting you to get, uh, learn to get over yourself. Uh, you could practice hospitality, invite people into your home, not your friends, people you other, otherwise wouldn't let into your house. You could give, be generous with your time, your resources with people, practices that involve self-denial, all sorts of things. Just throwing things out there for you to, to play with. Actually, you can play. Some of you work too hard. And that's why you grumble. You live to work. You don't work to live. And you can't imagine why God would put the Sabbath thing in the middle of your productive work week. (laughs) God, you're really ruining things for me. Does that because God wants you to play. For some of you, maybe the best thing that you could do to put an end to your grumbling and complaining, complaining, complaining is to complay. You want to replace complaining with complaining. I'm serious. Take a few hours and just have fun. And do it remembering that God is good. And you will begin to embed in your body and in your heart the things that your mind is reminding you about. God is good. So I'm going to have fun right now. I'm going to take a nap. I'm going to go to the beach. I'm going to go bungee jumping. I'm going to eat cheese until I pass out. Whatever it it is, it puts a smile on your face. Do that in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And be like, I can do this because God is good. Now listen. After a long time of training, it's not going to happen after the first one. You're still going to grumble. But after a long time of training yourself in small situations when it doesn't really matter, you will find over time, check me on this, try me on this, you will find that it is easier for you to refrain from grumbling or complaining when those bigger situations do arise. Not next week, over time. Why? You will find that you no longer need or desire to because your heart isn't there anymore. You are becoming the type of person who believes that God is good and who is living that way. Grumbling is just not a part of your vocabulary. And so it's no longer Paul or a preacher or your spouse telling you a new set of rules to follow by that you don't really believe in. You actually love the law of God because it's who you are at the deepest level. 
and your body is automatically running from a different script. This is spiritual formation and transformation for the whole person. James Bryan Smith, love this author, speaking about what we just saw in, in Paul, Habits says this, we can't change simply by saying, I want to change. We have to examine what we think, our narratives, and how we practice the spiritual disciplines, right? The way that we think, the things that we practice. And who we are interacting with, our social context, doing it with each other. And if we change those things, then change will come naturally to us. This is why Jesus said his yoke was easy. If we think the things that he thought, and do the things that Jesus did, and spend time with people who are like-minded, we will become like Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit, and it will not be difficult. The Holy Spirit makes people brand new. It gives you new desires, a new unction, and he changes you at the will, at the heart. But now we are working out our salvation because God is in us working and willing to, uh, to will, uh, will and work for his good pleasure. And he's renewing our mind. He's changing our habits over time, all in the context of community. And Paul says, after you do this, you are, a, you are becoming this different community, an alternative to what he says is a warped and crooked generation. Why are we doing this? Just because Paul wants to shut our mouths? No. It's because he wants the church to look different than everybody else. What would it look like? Just imagine this for a moment. Hundreds of people everywhere they go throughout the city that just don't get irritated by stuff. What would that do to people who get irritated about everything? You think they would start to wonder, what's your problem? What you smoking right now, you know? What if we're what if a whole group of people just were able to endure the hardest things without grumbling and complaining because that just wasn't in them? I think people would want a piece of that. We'd be able to say, It's Jesus. Paul rounds a corner in verse 16 by telling us where all of this is grounded because it's truly not just doing things differently and thinking about stuff. This is a supernatural endeavor, which is why Paul says, you must hold fast to the word of life. Following Jesus is supernatural. And when he says to hold fast, he is saying clinging to it like it's the only thing you got. Because it's the only thing you got is Jesus in you working. When he says word of life, I think he's probably referring to that Christ hymn, verse 5 through 11. That phrase, not just a bunch of semantics or words, but that phrase that succinctly describes the kingdom of God expressed in Jesus. He's saying hold fast to everything that Jesus is and stands for. That's all you've got is the person who expressed true power through weakness in love. That's all you got. And he's in you. That's all you got. And he's now sitting on the throne. We haven't memorized this passage yet, but we're going to get there. He's now sitting on the throne in authority, expressing true power over the universe right now. That's all you got. That's all you need. 
Paul is saying, hold fast to the word of life. Everything we're memorizing right now is becoming our reality, our lived experience. Let's just... uh, Verse 19 through 30, I spent so much time on verse 14. I'm going to stop us in a, in, a, in a minute. You can read this on your own. Paul talks about Timothy and he talks about Epaphroditus. And he brings up their loyalty. I have no one like Timothy. He brings up their lack of selfish ambition. He is genuinely concerned for your welfare, verse 20. Brings up Timothy's integrity, brings up his servanthood. He goes over to Epaphroditus. He brings up how caring he is. Talks about how he considers others more significant than himself. Talks about how selfless he is. Even though he's dying from an illness, all he thinks about is you guys, Philippi. What's he doing? He's taking the things that he's been talking about that we first see in Jesus, that he wants to see in the church, and he's saying, here's examples of that. Paul really wants to create a society of people who live from the life of God in Christ. A society set apart from the normal way of power and influence around us in the city of Santa Barbara. A society completely set apart by that. By the cruciform life of Jesus and his disciples. Imagine that type of community. We simply cannot get there by our own willpower. We get there by the gospel of Jesus, but, but, but. He's in you guys. Or maybe most of you. Some of you are just thinking about it. And those of you that are thinking about it, he's waiting to take over your life too. For everyone who sees in Jesus the truth, a reality, a more beautiful and persuasive and compelling vision of life than anything they've ever seen. It is available to you right now to be transformed from the inside out. All you have to do is believe everything that he says and say, by the power vested in me, by the spirit of the living God. I'm going to try to do everything that he said. I'm going to ask Alex to come up and the rest of the team. Keeping in mind verse 16, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. I love this because most of us have like one-year plans We have day calendars, month calendars. Some of us might have a five-year plan. Paul seemed to have a 50-year plan. This is a slow obedience in the same direction. Don't look for lightning bolts from the sky. This is a life lived with Jesus. Think about 99 years old. There might be someone in here that's 98. Think about what lies ahead, not what was behind you. God has a plan. And all he's asking is for you to join him on that plan. There are two types of people pictured in this passage. Those who are lacking true happiness, expressed in grumbling and complaining, and those who are so full of the life of God that they can be thankful in anything. 
What do you want? What kind of person do you want to be? The second type of life is available for free. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this picture of a destructive life that you show us that you want to save us from and the positive corollary of that living in union with Christ. You just can't help but think of Paul's ending exhortation in Colossians when he says, whatever you do in word or deed, do in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. God, I just pray that in this one small area of life, grumbling and complaining, you would take us from grumbling and complaining about everything, from being able to naturally do everything in word or deed as though Christ were doing it in us. And I pray that this would be a church that is transformed from the inside out, that overflows with exuberance and thanksgiving because God has been good to us. Lord, we can't possibly try to manufacture that or do it on our own. And we live in a world that is not always fun. And we have plenty to grumble and complain about. And so God, I just pray that for us, individually and corporately, you would give us a fresh filling of your Holy Spirit. The one who promised to testify about Jesus, may you invade our lives anew once again and our church together corporately and show us a panoramic view of what life looks like in the kingdom. And may we be compelled beyond all reason and beyond all doubt that you are truly who you said you are, the risen Son of God, the great teacher, the Lamb, the King, and our Lord. May you meet us in a fresh way today as we sing. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There's carpets at the front if you want to kneel. Spend time in some amount of solitude before God that's available to you. There's prayer teams to the right and to the left. Also upstairs, you can look for the little lanyard. We can pray for you in any manner that you want. Love to serve you in that way. There's the sacraments, the bread and the cup. And if you don't even have words, you're just a follower of Jesus who's desperate for more. You can take of these visuals visceral manner of, of reminder, reminding you that you truly are weak and God's power is made perfect in weakness. Hoist the bread up to the sky, take the cup and remind yourself it starts with Jesus. For the rest of us, let's just sing, sit, stand, kneel, lie down, weep, cry out, whatever. God is here among us as he promised and he's in the business of transforming people at the deepest level.